You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it is great to see you this morning. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to, uh, to John chapter 3. That's where you're going to need to be, and to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So if you'll have those out and open on your lap, that would really be a help to you. So John chapter 3, 2 Corinthians 9, um, if you need a Bible underneath every three or four seats, you should be able to find one, so we'd love for that to be out and open where you can read along, uh, where you can read along with us. And so as you're turning there, let me just give uh, one quick encouragement. Um, tonight we have our women's Christmas event. Um, it'll be here at the conference center, and um, just a first uh, word to our men, if, uh, if you have a, a wife or uh, you know, a daughter that's in high school age group, it would be a wonderful thing if you could free them up tonight to be able to be here. I think it would be an encouragement to their soul to, to get to be here tonight. And to our ladies tonight, I just want to encourage you to, to make sure you're a part of that tonight. Um, you know, I mean, I, our design for this is that we would get our ladies together to give them some good opportunities to get to know people at Stonegate that they otherwise probably wouldn't get to know. You're probably just not going to rub shoulders with some ladies because they're serving in different areas, doing different things in different home groups. So it's really a great time for you to be able to meet some, some new uh, ladies that you just don't know right now. And at the same time, I think it's going to be a great time for your heart to be encouraged. Uh, Bethany uh, Bernard is going to be uh, singing with you and uh, for you tonight. And so I think it's going to be a really good thing for your own soul. So that's tonight. You can still buy tickets. Uh, you can see Jennifer Kern up in the foyer after the service and she can get you all the information tonight. But if you're a lady, you should be there. I think it's going to be a really wonderful thing for your heart um, and for your faith. So with that in mind, uh, John chapter three, let me uh, preface kind of where we're going this morning by just giving kind of the broad picture one more time of, of where we are in this set of sermons. So if you just kind of stumbled in this morning, you are, you've stumbled into part eight of a set of sermons called Gospel Doctrine and Gospel Culture. And the heart of this set of sermons is, is this conviction that gospel doctrine should create something, namely a gospel culture. A culture is what most of us do most of the time. That's the culture, the vibe, the ethos of Stonegate Church. And a gospel doctrine, that that beautiful good news of Jesus should create a very distinct and different culture, a gospel culture. See, gospel doctrine was never meant to hang up here just in theoretical kind of abstract world. It was never meant just to stay up there. Gospel doctrine has always been intended by God to seep down into the details, the, the cracks and crevices of our lives and actually change things about our life, everything about our life. That, that's gospel doctrine, what it's meant to do. See, the gospel is not just a past reality that, that pays for your sin, the penalty of your sin. It's not just a future reality that will one day remove the presence of sin in heaven forever. It's not just a past and a future reality. It's also a present reality that changes the here and now in your life. And that's the culture that this doctrine affects. See, maybe one of the ways you could think about this is, you know, one of the hopes of this set of sermons is that more and more the good news of Jesus would become the interpretive grid over our, our lives. So just imagine the moment where you are sinned against or you are hurt by another human being. See, everything in us in that moment wants to punch back, doesn't it? They punch me, so I'm going to punch them. And gospel doctrine is what reminds us that although we threw the first punch at God, God did not punch back. So now we've got a new culture, a new lens that we're looking at. Now we're saying, we get to, we get to be like God our Father and be a peacemaker in this moment. Amen. When we get, we get to look at a broken world and, and the need of orphans in our world. 
And so now we've got this gospel doctrine over our lives. It's forming this interpretive grid. Should I get involved in that or not? And, and we instantly begin to think, well, there was a point where I was a spiritual orphan and God the Father adopted me. And so now it, it moves us to a different sort of a culture. See, it's this interpretive grid that now sits over our life so that everything that's happening, all of these inputs in our life are being, are being interpreted through this grid of how has God treated me in Jesus? And it begins to affect this culture. So, so gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. The doctrines of grace produce a culture of grace. The gospel doctrine summed up is really wonderful things happen to really unworthy people. And that should create a culture where really wonderful things are happening to unworthy people. Do you see that? That's what we're going at. That's the, the heart of this set of sermons. So we've just been taking slices of gospel doctrine and asking the question, what sort of a culture should flow from that doctrine? And today we're gonna to be in John 3.16. This is gonna be gospel doctrine. John 3.16. Probably not a more uh, well-known passage in the Bible and for good reason. It is right at the heart of the good news of Jesus here. So John 3.16 says this. <clears throat> For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's just read that together one more time. For God so loved the world. Has there ever been a more significant phrase than that one right there? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's just take this in three parts. We'll just take it phrase by phrase. Here's phrase number one. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. Now, the, the first part of that, we're introduced to, to this word God. That's the subject. There, there's a subject in this sentence, and it's doing something, this subject. And that, that person doing something is God. Now, let's just take a second here, because when we say the word God, um, I, I think in our culture, there is an assumed, I, everyone would know what we're talking about there. But we shouldn't assume that. We, we should think about that. We should consider that. The most important thought you will ever think in your life is the one immediately following the word God. That's the most important thought you'll ever think. Determines not only everything about your life now, but everything about your life in the future. The most important thought you will ever think is the one immediately following the word God. So, so let me just ask you this. Where, where did you get your thoughts about God? Like, how, how do you know that you didn't make that up? I mean, just think about how like the prevalent way people get thoughts about God in our culture. It's some sort of a mixture of family tradition with a little bit of Bible sprinkled in and kind of the cultural folklore that kind of revolves around God. This is how most of us get our thoughts about God. How do you know your thoughts about God are right? If, if the most important thought you're ever gonna think is the one immediately following the word God, we need to make sure we're thinking rightly about that, right? I mean, we need to make sure we're seeing that clearly. And the only way, and, and by the way, there is not one person in this room who has ever thought a thought about God that is big enough and massive enough to encompass God. We've never done justice to the idea of God, but it's important that we're thinking clearly about that. And the only way you can be sure that you are on the right track in how you're thinking about God is to actually read the Bible and ask the question, what is this teaching me about God? We all have this propensity to make God out in our own image. So God more and more over our life looks like us rather than more and more us looking like him. So we've got to think about this. We've got to read the Bible asking the question, who is this God? It's interesting, in the, in the opening few chapters of the Bible, in Genesis 17, 
uh, God discloses some things about himself. He's talking to Abraham. And if you'll remember in, in Genesis 12, he gives this big promise to Abraham. Abraham, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you a great nation. Your, your descendants are gonna be as numerous as the sand you, you know, on the seashore. That's how many, as many as the stars in the sky. This is how many your descendants are gonna be. This is the sort of, sort of blessing that I'm about to, to give to you. But the problem was Abraham did not have um, any offspring. And he and Sarah were well advanced in age well past the baby-making years. So there was a problem here. That the problem is God had made a promise, but re- listen to this, reality crashed into that promise. You ever been there? Where God makes all of these wonderful promises and then there's life. See, the, the, and now you get to Genesis 17 and, and God comes back to Abraham again. And here's, how, here's what God tells Abraham about himself. He looks at Abraham in light of all of these promises God has made and then life that is. And he looks at Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to know this about me. I am God Almighty, Genesis 17. This is who I am. I am God Almighty. Abraham, you need to know that. Now now think about why it is the Bible would say that. See, the Bible is not asking and answering questions that we don't ask. It's asking and answering questions that we do ask. And the reason in this moment, God is reminding Abraham of who he is, I am God Almighty, is because when God makes promises to us and life happens and it seems like God is not fulfilling those promises, we have a real propensity to question God's authority. Is God really Almighty? Are you serious, God? What is going, what is the problem here? You said this, but here's life, here's reality. There seems to be a gap between these two things. So he comes to Abraham, reminding him, pulling him out of a wrong thinking, reminding Abraham that, Abraham, this is who I am. Even though you can't see a way where my promises are going to affect your life right now, I am God Almighty. I love how Marcus Dodd, commenting on this passage in Genesis 17, listen to how he, what he says about it. This is what he's saying, paraphrasing, summarizing what God is saying in this phrase, I am God Almighty to Abraham. He says this, it's like God saying this to Abraham, I am Almighty God, able to fulfill our highest hopes and accomplish for you the brightest ideal that ever my word set before you. There is no need of paring down the promise until it squares with human possibilities. You don't have to be 30, Abraham, to have a baby. You can be 90 and it can still go down. That's God Almighty, isn't it? That is God Almighty. No need of relinquishing one hope it has begotten. No need of adopting some interpretation of it, which would make it seem easier to fulfill. And no need of striving to fulfill it in any second-rate way. All possibility lies in this, Abraham. I am the Almighty God. See, this is where the good news of Jesus starts. It starts with God Almighty. That's where it starts. The good news of Jesus is not asking, you know, for you to settle for something. It's not asking for that. It's asking you to walk into God Almighty, who in this God, there is not one thing that is impossible. That, that's, the, that's where the good news of Jesus starts with a God like that. And, and so you've got this, this God for God, and, and then this God's doing something. He is loving. The, okay, now, now around this idea of God loving are, are two phrases, two, two ideas. You've got something on the front end and something on the back end. Look at the word right before uh, the word loved. You see that word? It's a, it's a two-letter word, so. Now, wh- what is that word so telling us about the way God loves? 
That word so is bringing intensity to it, isn't it? It's bringing the emphasis to it. In the actual Greek text, that word so is at the very first of the sentence. It's the first word in, in this verse. And it's at the first because it's front-loading that verse with emphasis. It's not just that God moderately loves the world, kind of loves the world, sort of loves the world. No, it's that God is intense in the way he loves the world. God is over the top in the way he loves the world. It's a full out, nothing held back sort of love. That's the sort of way that God loves. And then you get this phrase after it. So if so is the intensity of it, then you've got these, these two words that follow the word loved, the world. So if so equals intensity, the, the words, the world, are showing us the amazing nature of God's love. So like when you read John 3.16, ask yourself the question, what am I expecting it to say? Like if, if, I'm, if we're thinking about a God who has been deeply offended by rebellious sons and daughters of his, so, so he creates the world, he, he puts them in a perfect garden. I mean, it's, it's full out grace from God bestowed upon human beings and they rebel against him. They throw the first punch. What are you expecting God to say? See, when I read John 3, 16, I'm expecting to read something like this. For God so loved the lovable. For God so loved the pretty. For God so loved the, those who are, you know, have kind of got life put together. God, God so loves the strong. God so loves the powerful. God so loves the righteous. That's what I'm expecting it to say, but it doesn't say that. It says, for God so loved the world. Translated, God so loves the broken. God so loves the abused and the abuser, the oppressed and the oppressor, the frail, the, the ripped to shreds, that just can't get life together that struggles with the same sin over and over and over. It's God so loving that because that is all that this world has. That's the world. Look down at verse 19. That'll give you a description of it. That the world is made up of people who, here's the light, it's Jesus, but we run from the light, not wanting our wicked deeds to be exposed. And God is saying, that is who I have come to love. And it's not just a moderate love. It is an extreme, over-the-top sort of love. For God so loved the world. Here's the second phrase, that he gave his only son, that he gave. And just think about that. In response to our sin and wickedness and rebellion, here is God's response to us. God gives. Do you know that you have never met a more generous person than God? You've never met a more generous human being than God is. And we know that because God has given us the most precious thing this world has. Namely, he's given us his only son. There's never been a person more, listen to this, more generous to you than God has been to you. And that generosity is expressed. This is what love looks like from God. It's God giving. And in light of your rebellion and your wickedness, it's God coming to you with the person of a son giving, generously giving, sacrificially giving you Jesus. That's the generosity of God. Now, now that word only in, in front of son, that, that's telling us something. That this gift of Jesus is a precious gift. 
There's not another gift like it. This is the only way we can be made right with God. It's the only way we can have our sin covered. It's the only way we can be adopted into the family of God. It's the only way for all of those things to happen. It is his only son, precious son, unlike any other son, unique son. This is the generosity of God towards you. Just think about how um, the the gospel of John, uh, John in this gospel talks about Jesus. He talks about him as as God in the flesh, that's John 1. He, He talks about him as the bread of life, that's John 6. Anyone who comes to him will never hunger or thirst again. Talks about him as the resurrection and the life. Although you die, you're gonna live forever. He is the unique son of God. In him, all other things become possible. This is the generosity of God that he would give his only son. Have you ever had a moment where you wondered if God cares about you? Have you ever had one of those moments? If you're a Christian, you should be saying yes right now, right? Right. There's not one of us in here who hasn't had a moment where we have thought, Does God, does he even know I exist right now? Does he care for me? Do you know the sure and and tangible and solid proof of how much God cares for you? You know where to look for that? Right here in John 3, 16. You look at the cross of Christ. You you look at this. God loves you enough that that he, he cares about you enough that he would graciously, sacrificially give his one and only son to make you a son or daughter. That's how much he loves you. So so he gave his only son. Here's the last phrase. So that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You see that word, whoever? That's an inclusive word, isn't it? That's That's a good news word right there. That whoever... This is an equal opportunity thing. Whoever, it's an an all-inclusive. I I love how one one of my friends summarizes the gospel. He says it this way. We've been saying this over the last couple of months, that we're all idiots. We have an incredibly bright future in Jesus and anyone can get in on this. That whosoever of John 3, 16 is the anyone can get in on this phrase. That it is open to anyone. Do you want it right now? Here's the good news of Jesus. You can come and get it. Come and have it. It is open to whoever. So whoever, he says. And then there's two options. Look at the last couple of phrases here. Here are the two options. So if whoever is the all-inclusiveness of John 3.16, here is the rigidness of John 3.16. Here are the two options. It's an either-or option for every human being. Either we will perish or have eternal life. Those are the two options. There's not a third option. There's not like a slide in a second and a half option. There's two options. It's perish on one side and eternal life on the other. I love how one of my um, friends, how he describes the word perish. Listen to him describe this. I want you to look down at your text right now. John 3, 16, you see that? I want you to look at that word perish. Listen to what he says about that word. He says, stare at that word perish for a while. He says, it's captured dimly in a play called Breathe, written in 1969 by Samuel Beckett, who contributed to that era's theater of the comedy, or of the absurd. He goes on to say this, the whole play lasts about 35 seconds. The curtains part to reveal a pile of garbage on stage. There are no actors. The only sound is a human cry as the lights come up, which is followed by silence, which is followed by a whimper as the lights go out. End of play, end of life, end of story. 
That's a picture of perishing. A lifetime that leaves behind a trail of cast off clothes, old computers, carbon emissions, and lost opportunities. Then a funeral, and then the death of everyone who wept at your funeral. And then you don't matter ever again. That's perishing. You don't matter ever again, except when you stand before the white hot judgment of God in eternity, where you will give an account for rejecting him. Hell is for people who could have enjoyed the love of God, but held back. Now listen to that. Hell is for people who could have enjoyed the love of God, but held back. The Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. That is perishing. That is one option. That is the either or, one of the either or options for every human being that has ever lived and ever will live. But there's another option, a great option, a life-giving option. There's perishing on one side and then there's eternal life on the other. Like God, God comes to his rebels. He gives them the, the gracious gift of his son, Jesus. And through that gracious gift of his one and only son, he opens up the doorway for reconciliation. He opens up the doorway for adoption. He opens up the doorway for eternal life with God forever, forever. We talked about this a few weeks ago in kind of the gospel doctrine of glorification. And we just summarized new heavens and a new earth that when God is talking about what is to come, this incredibly bright future for all of those in Jesus, he basically says it like this in, in Corinthians. He says, you, you cannot get your mind around how good this is going to be. You cannot get your mind around it. Everything your heart hopes for, it's gonna be that and more. That is, that is the incredibly bright future for all of those in Christ. Those are the two options. And then he says this, there's a whoever, that's the all-inclusiveness of it. Then here's the rigidness of it. It's either perishing or it's eternal life. And then you get this word, believes. You see that little word in John 3, 16? Believes. That, that is the hinge. That is what moves a person from perishing to eternal life. Now, now that word believe, we, we've got to just make sure we don't assume that we know what that means. Because our culture the, the, the dominant way people think about the word believe is not the, the way the Bible thinks about the word believe. In our culture, what most people mean when they say that I believed in Jesus or I have faith in Jesus, what most people mean is I have heard a set of facts and I agree with those facts. That is not what the Bible means with the word believe. It's not just hearing and agreeing. That, it's not less than that, but it's much more than that in the Bible. The, the, word, the idea of biblical belief or putting your faith in Jesus is not just hearing and not just agreeing, but it's throwing your life upon him. I, I love how that just John 3, 16 is set up and, and kind of the, the nuance of the Greek language is really saying this. It's saying believing into Jesus. Like the distance is cut down. You're no longer over there and him over there, but you are now together. You are now in him. All distance is done away with. He is no longer kind of a, a peripheral add-on or accessory in your life. He is your life. This is what believing in Jesus means. It means that your life is now lost in him. You're now in him. He is now in you. This is believing in Jesus. I, I love how one the, uh, theologian, uh, Gerhard Ford, he describes it this way. He says, we are justified freely for Christ's sake by faith without the exertion of our own strength. This is belief, he's saying. 
See, it's, it's not by the exertion of our own strength, gaining of merit or doing of works. To the age-old question, what shall I do to be saved? The confessional answer is shocking. This is how shocking the good news of Jesus is. This is what you have to do to be saved. Nothing. You, you contribute nothing to it. Nothing. Just be still. And I love how he says this. Just be still, shut up, and listen for once in your life to what God the Almighty, creator and redeemer, is saying to his world and to you in the death and resurrection of his son. Listen and believe it. That's how we get saved. We do nothing other than look at what God has done and believe what God has done. Throw our life upon what God has done. See, when, when all accounts are settled, when, you know, when the dust settles and, and the smoke clears, God is not, the categories are not, when you stand before God, the categories will not be immoral versus moral. Were you good in comparison to other people or bad in comparison to other people? Were you nice or were you mean? That is not the categories that, that when we stand before Jesus that we're going to be put into. The categories when we're before Jesus one day when everything is settled, where all accounts come clean, the categories are this. You're either in Christ because you believed or you're not in Christ because you withheld. Those are the two categories. Eternal life for those who believe, who throw their life upon Jesus, who did everything that we couldn't do, they get eternal life. For those who withheld, for those who held back, they're the ones who perish. Can we just have this moment right now in this room? Have you believed? Not just have you agreed with some facts, but do you have a realizing sense of them? Have you thrown your life upon Jesus? That's the question. Have you believed? Has there been a moment where you have hurled your life on the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, trusting that that is gonna be your way for being right with God? Not just Jesus as an add-on or an accessory, but Jesus as your life. Has that moment happened? See, this is the deal God makes with every human being. I'll graciously give you my one and only son. He'll live the life you couldn't live. He'll die the death that you should have died. And, and I'll make this deal with you. It's either he pays for your sin or you're gonna pay for your sin. That's the deal. That I'll give my son to pay for your sin. So the question is, will we believe? Will we hurl our life upon Jesus, trusting that he will pay for our sin or will we withhold that and will we pay for our sin? God is saying, will you take my generosity? Will you take the deal I'm making with you? I'll let Jesus pay for your sin. How about you take that one? Man, have you taken that deal? It doesn't get any better than that one, does it? That is the generosity of God toward you and toward me, toward the world. So this is gospel doctrine. The generosity of God. Now the question is, what sort of a culture should that create? If John 3.16 is gospel doctrine, what is the culture that should flow from that doctrine? So if John 3.16 is gospel doctrine, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8 is, is gospel culture. It's the culture that should flow from it. And in short, we could summarize it this way. The unprecedented generosity of God should create a culture a.k.a. a church that is generous, where generosity abounds, that the gen unprecedented generosity of God should be creating that sort of a culture, a generous culture. Now, can we all agree that the world needs more of that? That we live in a tight, 
stingy, hoarding mentality sort of a world. We live in a world where everyone is, is concerned about chiefly and primarily about building their own little kingdom about how can I build my own little empire right here? We live in a world that really equates happiness equals having. That's the equation our world lives by. And into that world that lacks generosity, that lacks an open-handedness, to that world that is so stingy, so prone to hoard, the church has this beautiful opportunity to present this picture of what generosity can and should look like. This is, this is the church being a model home for what the kingdom of God, the neighborhood that God's building will one day be like. A generous culture. So you see this in 2 Corinthians 9. Now here is the context. Let's just make sure we get the context. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are the longest teaching about generosity in the scriptures. It's the most robust teaching. This is Paul looking at the Corinthian church and he's urging them toward giving, toward sacrificial giving. That's sort of giving that cuts deep. And his motive for that is in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Look at 2 Corinthians 8, uh, verse 9. The motive for this giving that he's talking about is God who was rich made himself poor. He gave you the most precious thing he has, Jesus. He who is rich made himself poor so that you who were poor could be rich. That's the logic of, of this passage that you have become rich in Jesus. You have everything your heart could possibly need in Jesus. Therefore, we can be generous now. Therefore, in light of how God has given to us the generosity of God, the fact that God would give us his only son, that unlocks incredible generosity in the church. This is his logic. Now you get to the uh, chapter nine, verse six, and Paul is landing the plane here. He's kind of summing this thing up, and this is what he says. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Let me just point out a couple of things here. Number one, Christians give. Look at verse seven. Each one must give. Christians give. You see that in verse seven? First couple of words. Each one must give. He's talking to the church and he's saying here, giving is like a reflective, it's just like the reflective response of, of a person who has been redeemed by the grace of God. That this is just what Christians do. I love how Randy Alcorn summarizes this. He says, where the lightning of grace strikes, the thunder of generosity is sure to follow. That, that is what Paul is saying here. Where, where the lightning of grace strikes, you can just bank on in a Christian's life that, that the thunder of, gener, of, of generosity is gonna follow that lightning. That grace that, that God gives is always, this generous grace is also always gonna lead to a generous people. This is gospel logic. This is how this thing works. And listen, that's not to say that every person who claims to be a Christian is going to be generous, but it is saying this. Christians are generous. Not every person who claims to be a Christian is generous, but Christians are generous. This is the ref, like the reflexive response of a heart who, is, who has felt deep in their bones the grace of God. Now, this generosity is multidimensional. So, so let's just take some of, of the multidimensions of this generosity. So, um, you know, when you think about the things that God has entrusted to you, it could, it, it could be in one of several categories. We could put it in the category of time. 
Time is a precious gift, isn't it? And listen to this, because it's precious, you know what we're all prone to do? Hoard it. As if hoarding it is the best way to spend it. So because it's precious, our tendency, we're all gonna be prone to saying, let me grab mine to make sure I have enough for me. See, we're all prone to think, this is man in his like deformed desire state. Man in the flesh, your old way of thinking is like this. If something is precious, I better keep it for me. Really believing that we're more blessed when we keep as opposed to when we give. But the Bible says it's not true. You are not better off by keeping. You're just not. So it's the one element of that, one, one layer of giving of generosity is time. How, how do you use your time? Another layer of that is your talents. That God has entrusted to you various spiritual gifts, various talents that other people don't have. And can we all just be straight on this? It's not like before you were born, you had like a pre-birth you know, Christmas list. I'm gonna take business savvy. I'm gonna take an extra dose of wisdom. I'm gonna take the gift of hospitality. That's not how it worked, is it? That's true, no it's not. That is not how it's worked. It worked like this, you came out of the womb and God just gave you some things. And it's a travesty when all of those things that God has given us get turned inward, building our own little empire, as opposed to outward, God's mission and the good of other people. So he's given us talents. And then the last one is treasure, money and possessions. This is the specific context that Paul's in in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. That he's saying this, that giving is robust. Generosity is robust. And our giving, context of gen- or, uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is, the way we give ought to cut down to the quick of our lives. That the way we give our time, the way we give of our talents and expertise and spiritual giftings, the way we give of our money and possessions, it should make some things impossible to do in our life because we are giving in this sort of a way. This is what he's getting after here. The Christians give. They give of all of these things. You know, I was just thinking last night about over the last five years of Stonegate's um, life, the, the, just the, I've just gotten to see so many incredible pictures of, of the people of God giving of their time, talents, and treasure. Just walk up to the preschool today and pick up your kids. That is somebody giving of their time and their talents. But the reason you're sitting here is because a lot of people have given a lot of, tr- of their treasure, their money and possessions that God's entrusted to them to make that possible. It's just a remarkable story of watching the generosity of God's people at play. Christians give. It's the, the reflective response of a heart that's been redeemed by grace. Second thing is Christians cannot outgive God. Now this is, this is where it gets interesting for us. Uh, Paul's trying to convince us of something. So look at verse six again. Look at verse six. He's making the point that Christians cannot outgive God. So in verse six, it's a summary statement. He starts verse six by saying, here's the point that I'm trying to get to. Okay, I've been beating around the bush for a chapter and a half. Here's the deal. Let me just summarize it like this. And then to make his point, he uses gardening or farming imagery. So, so he, he, he looked at him and he says, you can either go one of two ways in your life. You can sow sparingly, but here's what you need to know if you do that. You're going to reap sparingly. Or you can go this way. You can sow bountifully. And if you do that, here's what I want you to know right now in 2 Corinthians 9, as I'm telling you this, you need to know this, that you're going to also reap bountifully. You can sow sparsely and reap sparsely. If that's what you wanna do, fine, go for it. It's farming imagery. If you, if you sow just a few seeds, you're probably just gonna get a few plants. You're just gonna get a little harvest. But if you sow a lot of seeds, 
you're probably gonna give it a big harvest. He's saying, just think about that principle and that's what you need to think when you apply it to generosity. That, that if you sow bountifully, you are going to reap bountifully. So if I were just summarizing what Paul is getting at, I think it's this. He's trying to convince you and I that you cannot outgive God. It's impossible to do. Now, there is a little angst that I feel in saying that because I feel like this idea has been sabotaged by people on TV. So, and here's how the TV moment goes. Um, you sow your seed today. You give a dollar today. Here's what you can expect next week. You're going to get a $10 back. And listen, that is not what Paul is saying. He's not saying if you give a dollar right now, you're going to get a dollar tomorrow or you're going to get $10 tomorrow. I don't know how the, 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 the harvest is going to be reaped for you. I don't know what it's going to look like. I, I just know this, that you should not expect if I give right now, I am going to, that's going to equate into $1 today equals $10 next week. That is not the idea, but he, it, this is the idea. So I don't want to get, to get sabotaged by that because Paul is making a point. And the point is this, you cannot outgive God. Amen. You cannot do that. There will, maybe we could put it this way. There will never be a day in the Christian's life when all accounts are settled. There will never be a moment where a Christian looks back over the, the, the you know, panoramic picture of their life and thinks this, I got ripped off. God totally ripped me off in this. He said there will never be that moment. Amen. That's not going to happen. When you stand before God someday and you see your life in light of eternity, there will not be the moment where you are, you're feeling, man, I got gypped in this thing. Here's gonna be the moment we're all gonna have when we stand before God. What was I thinking? Why did I not give more then so I could experience more joy now? What was I doing? Gosh, I wish somebody would just shaken me and told me to give more. That is what every Christian's gonna be thinking one of these days. It's interesting, in Mark 10, when Jesus is talking about this, in Mark 10, he says, uh, you know, whoever um, has to give homes, brothers, sisters, family, you name it. Who, you know, those people who have given, I mean, just sacrificially down to where it hurts in following me. Th th those people, here's what they can expect. A hundredfold. That's a 10,000% return on your investment. Just imagine if somebody came up to you and said, hey, uh, I've got this thing going, man, it is going. Here's what you can expect on this thing. A 10,000% you know, return on your, who in here is not get, like, emptying their bank account and doing that? And that's exactly what God is saying. That when all accounts are settled, here's what you can expect. A 10,000% return on your investment. A hundredfold, that's what you can expect. Now, is, that, is anybody that makes a hundred you know, fold on their investment, is anybody thinking, man, I got ripped off, I got shortchanged on that thing? Nobody's thinking that. See, so I'm just praying that God would give us a lens to believe this. See, here's the problem I have. If, if I'm just honest with you, there are moments where I believe I can outgive God. There's moments I really believe that. And what we all need God to do for us is to help us believe that that's impossible to do. The sower analogy. You sow sparsely, you're gonna reap sparsely. You sow bountifully, you're gonna reap bountifully. You can't outgive God. Here's the third thing I want you to see. That Christians give cheerfully. They don't just give, and it's not just this idea they can't outgive God, but they give in such a way where it's cheerful. Look at verse seven. See where it says, not reluctantly, but cheerfully? Aren't we glad that God gave to us cheerfully? Amen. That it wasn't a begrudging giving. 
And, and he's saying that, that sort of grace, when it lands in your heart, produces a sort of cheerfulness and a joyfulness in the way that we can give. See, maybe we could think about it this way. When it comes to generosity, God is not after any sort of obedience, but a very certain kind of obedience. It's not just any obedience, it's a certain kind of obedience. He is not after begrudging submission. He is after a joyful submission. See, we've used this to, to illustrate this. It's from one of my favorite pastors. You know, he uses the analogy of just imagine that moment where a couple has been married for 20 years and the guy comes home for work. It's the 20th year anniversary. He's got roses in his back pocket. He knocks on the door. The wife answers the door, the wife of 20 years. And he looks at her and says, you know, we've been married for 20 years and this is what husbands who've been married for 20 years do. They, they give their wife flowers. So here's flowers for you. Hope, I hope you like them. Now, does a wife feel appreciated in that moment? No, she doesn't feel appreciated. But if that same husband comes back from 20 years, he busts to the door and he says, where are you? And he goes and tracks her down. And he whips those roses out in front of her. And he says, it's been 20 years. There's been good and there's been bad. But I want you to know that I love you and I appreciate you. And if I had it to do all over again, it's with you. Now, how does she feel in that moment? Yeah. Now, now that's, uh, and, and guys, by the way, that's a hint. That's a hint. But do you see the difference there? God is not after way one in, in, in how we obey. He's after way two, a joyful submission, a joyful obedience, a joyful, a cheerful generosity. And there's good reason to be, be uh, cheerful and joyful in the way that we give. There's good reason for that. Let me just give you a couple of them. One, our giving glorifies God. Every time you give, here's what it's saying. God is worth more to me than money is. God is worth more to me than time is. God is worth more to me than my talent is. God is worth everything to me. Every time we give, that's what we're saying. God is worth more. It gives glory to God. Here's the second reason that we should be cheerful in giving. It's good for us. Listen, giving, like for me, is good for me. And do you know why? Because money, like few other things, has a very seductive whisper that will lure us into believing that if we can just have more of it, we'll really be okay. That if we can have more of it, if we can save it, if we can spend it, then we'll have the security, the significance, the, the happiness in life that we really crave. I mean, just think about the rich young ruler for a second. When it came down, the rich young ruler, when it came down between, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let go of my money and follow Jesus, or I'm gonna keep my money and not follow Jesus, he chose money and possessions over Jesus. Now look at me right in the eyes. That is a well-worn path. That's a well-worn path. And listen, the more, the more you have, the more likely it is that when Jesus asks you to walk away from all that you have, you're gonna walk away from Jesus instead of all that you have. This is a well-worn path. The Bible is very clear on the dangers of money. And every time you give, here's what you're reminding your own soul. This is when I give. This is what I'm reminding my soul of. My life is not found in money and possessions, but in God. And can we all agree? I need that. You need that. We all need that. It's good for us. And thirdly, it is good for God's mission. Giving. We should be cheerful in giving because it propels the mission of God. Now, some people don't like it when I say this, but this is true. And if you don't like it, you need to take a look at your own heart for a moment. But here's the truth about God's mission. God's mission requires money. I'm gonna say that one more time. God's mission 
requires money. So let's just think about this. We want to plant a lot of churches. Why? Because we feel like that is the best way to carry out God's mission. If that is true, can I just tell you what planting churches will always require? Money. Think about this. It's the reason Paul is saying 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. It's because mission requires money. It's the reason the 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is in the Bible is because Paul is looking at mission and saying, if we don't have money, we can't do this. So, so this is embedded into the scripture. Mission requires money. If we want to see kids adopted, fostered, do you know what that's going to require? Money. It requires money to do that. It, it, that's just a reality of life. Like we were talking to one couple, they want to adopt two kids. You know what that price tag is probably going to be for them? Seventy-five dollars to $80,000. It requires money to do that. So if, if we're gonna see those things happen, if, if we're gonna plant churches, if we're gonna see um, you know, kids adopted, kids, if we're gonna see these things happen, if we're gonna serve our city like we want to serve our city, it is going to require money. Now, here's the thing. I think God's intentionally designed it that way. And here's the reason I think he designed it that way. Matthew 6, 21 says, um, where your money goes, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And I think God has specifically designed mission to require money to get our hearts into the mission. Do you see how that works? See, the, your giving, your, the way you save or the way you spend, listen to this, is shaping your affections. It's shaping what you care about in your life. See, if, if, if you wanna be a person who cares more about adoption, you know the easiest way to do that is to give toward adoption. If you want to be a person who cares more about your church, you know the way you should do that is to give more toward a church. If you want to be a person who cares more about church planting, you know the way to do that is to give sacrificially towards church planting. See, it's the same principle. If you have all your money in the stock market, do you know what you're going to be checking periodically? The stock market, aren't you? If you have your money invested into church planting, adoption and foster care, your church family, you know what you're going to be checking on, thinking about, praying about often? Those things. See, wherever you're investing your money, Whatever you're doing with your money, your heart is being pulled right behind that. And God's designed mission, money, and your heart to all work in this way. Mission is gonna require money. And when you start giving sacrificially, here's what it's gonna instantly start doing, pulling your heart to where you love the things that God loves. This is how it works. And we should be cheerful in that. That when we're giving, here's what we're giving to. The mission of God being advanced. The kingdom of God. This little outpost of heaven being more fully developed so the world can see a picture of God. That's what we're doing. And then lastly, D, we'll end with this. Christians give in light of God's promises. Look at verse eight and we're done. Christians give in light of God's promises. Verse eight, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now that is a verse you should memorize right there. That is a great verse that every Christian needs. See, here's the logic of the verse. The logic of the verse is God gives. And he doesn't just give a little bit. He gives you everything in the, in the form of his son everything your heart needs, he's giving it to you. And when that grace lands in your soul, it produces generosity. Now here's where generosity gets jammed in most of us. We look at the grace God has given us and here's the mentality we work with. If I start giving out of this little pile of grace that God's given me, if I start giving out of that pile, well, the pile is gonna start shrinking. 
Like, so if, if God's given me grace, and he's been generous in the way he's given. But if, if I start giving out of the grace that God's given me, I'm gonna start looking at that pile in me and that pile is gonna, gonna start shrinking. It's gonna start lowering. And there's gonna be a day where if I keep giving, the pile's gonna go away. I'm not gonna have any more grace to give from. See, this is, if you boil it down, this is, this is where generosity jams in most of our lives is we're operating from a principle that goes like this. I've only got so much to give, so I better be careful. I've only got this pile. So if I give too crazy out of this pile, I'm not gonna have anything left. So I can't do that. And this is what Paul is saying here. That's not the right way of thinking. That is not the right way of thinking. That here, here's, the, here's the picture that I want you to leave, you know, maybe leave you with this morning. Here's the picture of the pile that we're giving from. God comes to us, gives us generously in the form of his son. We've got this pile of grace that we start giving, time, talent, treasure, all of these things out of. And we're thinking like this, if I give, that pile's gonna start shrinking. But then we start to see as we start giving, it's like there is a deep well underneath that pile and our giving acts like a pump that pumps more grace out of the well. So that every time we give, we start looking at the pile, realizing the pile doesn't shrink. God, like God keeps giving more grace as we keep giving grace. Do you see how that works? Paul is trying to convince us of this. There's never going to be a, a day where your giving is going to give away all of the grace that God gives. That God keeps restocking the pantry of grace. He keeps repiling on grace. He keeps pumping out grace out of the well underneath the pile. There's never gonna be a day where you run out of grace to give generously. So I, I'm gonna just finish by reading a quote from a guy named A.W. Tozer. And I think this is really where uh, generosity hits all of us, is right here. Do we really believe God or not? And you know what our lack of generosity, just when you just cut it down and boil it down to the essence of it, here's what our lack of generosity shows us is believing God is really hard. And our generosity is like living proof that for many of us, we just don't believe God. We don't believe passages like this. We don't believe what God says about generosity. So I think it leads to this. Well, I'll, I'll just finish here. A.W. Tozer, pseudo faith or a false faith always arranges a way out in case God fails. So just in case he doesn't come through, let's have a plan B. Real faith knows only one way and gladly allows itself to be stripped of any second way or makeshift attributes. For true faith, it is either God or total collapse. And not since Adam first stood up on earth has God felled a single man or woman who trusted him. The man of false faith or pseudo faith will fight for his verbal creed, but refuse to but refuse flatly to allow himself to get into any predicament where his future must depend upon the creed being true. So he believes it's true, like confessionally, but he's not gonna like put his life on the line for that thing. He always provides himself with secondary ways of escape so that he will have a way out if the roof caves in. The faith of Paul or Luther was a revolutionizing thing. It upset the whole life of the individual and made him into another person altogether. It laid hold on the life and brought it under obedience to Christ. It took up its cross and followed along after Jesus with no intention of going back. It had finality about it. It realigned all life's actions and brought them into accord with the will of God. What we need very badly these days are Christians who are prepared to trust God as completely now 
as they must do at the last day. For each of us, a time is coming when we shall have nothing but God. Let's pray together. That day's coming where all we have is God. And wouldn't it be wise if that day is on the horizon for us to start working and planning and giving generously now toward that? You know, the Bible talks a lot about the idea of being rich toward God. And there's just a big difference in being rich and being rich toward God. And here's the difference. One of those things matters in the end. And the way we become rich toward God is by sacrificially giving time, talents, our giftings, our treasure, everything God's entrusted to us, leveraging cheerfully all of those things into the kingdom. It glorifies God. It's good for you. It's good for God's mission. It's good. Everybody wins in that. You know, if you, if you want to think about the, the culture and the doctrine together, here is the doctrine. God gives his big all to us in the person of his son, Jesus. This is gospel doctrine. The generosity of God poured out toward us as God gives his big all, the precious gift of his only son to us. And here's the culture. So that we can now begin to give our little alls to God. We can begin to give our time, talents, treasures to God. God gives his big all, that's doctrine. So now we are able to give our little all, culture. So I wanna give you just a moment to look at your own life, to think about your life. Are you a generous person? And it seems like for, for a lot of people, they wanna barricade themselves into one area of generosity. So when we think about that, to justify ourselves, we look at, it's just the treasure part. But, but time, I can't be generous. Or it's just the time. But, but in other ways, I can't be generous. It's just my, my talents that I'm leveraging. But in other ways, I can't. And God is saying, no, it's a robust, multidimensioned generosity. Are, are you generous? And I wanna give you just a second to pray for your own heart. That God would make you more generous. That God would help you in that. God would help you believe that, that what he's saying, the promises he gives toward these things, that God would help you believe that they're true. And if you're finding this morning that generosity is jammed in your life, that, that there's something in you that is just so looking to things and to money and possessions for life that you just can't let go of things or you want to hoard things. And if this is a great morning to repent. This is the great news of the gospels that God right now is saying, well, why don't you come to me and bring that to me? My, my generosity will even move into this for you. And so Father, I want to pray for our church family, God, that you would make us a generous people. God, would you by your grace do that? Would you create that in this church family? And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.